Hi everyone and welcome to the first Remember a Charity podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. So we were originally planning to share these as webinars but then we decided to do podcasts to make it a bit more informal and conversational to have uh, discussions as opposed to having it as a one-way presentation. So introductions. My name is Lucinda Darby. I'm the marketing manager at Remember a Charity. I've probably met or spoken to many of you. Um, with me, not literally with me, uh, we have Matthew and Ashley. Uh, do you both want to introduce yourselves and just explain briefly what you do? Yeah, I'll go first. So hi, everyone. I'm Ashley Rothorn. Um, I'm director at Legacy Link. Um, we are the leading legacy administration consultancy. I, I would say we're the leading because I run it, but um, started about 20 years ago. Um, and work with lots and lots of different charities providing a legacy administration service. Um, this is my first podcast as well. So I'm, I, was, I didn't know it was the first ever Remember a Charity podcast. So I'm honoured to be part of that. Um, I've been fundraising for my whole career. I started, I specialised in legacy giving back in 2008. Um, and I've been, I think I'm connected to Remember a Charity, I think, for quite a lot of that time. So that's me. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, it is, it's lovely to be here. My name is Matthew. I am Chief Executive of the Institute of Legacy Management, which is the professional body for charity staff working in legacy administration. Uh, we represent about 600 and something members across about 400 charities. And I personally have been working in the world of legacies for 20 years now, unbelievably, in fact, nearly 21. Um, and I can empirically say from our position as uh, the sort of body for legacy administrators and legacy managers that Legacy Link is definitely the leading uh, consultancy for legacies, uh, certainly in England and Wales. <laughs> Thanks, Matthew. And that's not just because we pay you a lovely sponsorship every year. It's nothing to do with that. <laughs> that's nothing to do with anything. Thank you, Faith. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to be on the podcast and thank you to everyone for taking time to listen. Um, so as we all know, these are really strange and difficult times for the charity sector as a whole, um, but the legacy sector in particular has a very specific set of challenges. Um, so at Remember Charity, what we want to do is support our members as much as we possibly can during this time. So our plan is to share some podcasts where we're going to bring together experts to help answer and discuss some key questions on your behalf. Because um, we know that fundraising is going to be more important than ever once this is all over. Um, so we hope that these podcasts will help provide some guidance and some support for you both now and in the weeks and potentially months to come. Um, so today, as we said, is our very first podcast and the topic is Legacy Admin. Um, so I will be posing some questions to Matthew and Ashley on your behalf, specific to this area and its related challenges at this time. So uh, going into the questions, number one, how do we ensure we remain open for business and keep cash flow moving during the lockdown? Um, over to Ashley first. Okay, that's, I mean, it's a good question. I think, I mean, before I maybe answer that specifically, I think it is important to understand I guess what's going on and 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 how this whole situation is likely to affect legacy income um you know we know it's i mean it's clear that the whole charity sector 
not the whole country, you know, it's facing a very kind of crisis for its survival at the moment. And we know voluntary income as a whole is, is, um, is expected to reduce quite significantly. I think NCVO estimated about four billion pounds potentially of lost fundraised income. And legacy giving normally contributes about a quarter of that. So last year, three billion pounds um, was given to charities. So how do, you know, I think, how do we make sure that we can get as much of that in? Because legacy, legacy income is so important to you know, thousands of charities who rely on it. It's not just money, you know, it, it pays for the services it pays for the mission, you know, it affects, um, it affects lives. I think one of the positives, I think, is that while lots of other areas of, of voluntary income potentially is, is essentially lost, you know, council direct debits, fundraising events not happening, we know that legacy income is, is relatively, you know, it's, it's a certain entitlement, it's going to be received at some point albeit you know we know that the value of that might well be impacted um, and and actually interestingly um so yesterday the ons have published um data on the potential impact of of um deaths on from from coronavirus last i think last week alone they said there was an additional six thousand deaths um from from this now while Obviously, every death is a tragedy, and we and then we can't actually escape the fact that someone has to die for a charity to receive a legacy gift, which should always be kind of front of mind. Actually, that you know, we if we assume the same percentage of people, those people have included the gift to charity. I kind of worked out potentially that was another 420 legacy gifts that will be notified to charities from last week alone. So in this really difficult time, legacy gifts legacy income will carry on um so quite back to the, i guess back to the question how do we make sure that we're like, the business how do we keep money coming in i think firstly simply you know get set up to work remotely and contrary to many people's views before the pandemic it is absolutely and completely possible to work remotely um you know we're really fortunate that this is 2020 and there are loads of new innovative ways we you know we can work we can get connected so um hopefully we you know we're in week four now of this lockdown so hopefully we've all kind of managed to sort that out but one of the big challenges is you know post how do we get it accessed somebody maybe needs to still go into the office scan it but we can redirect it maybe to someone's home to fulfillment house i think you know where possible we absolutely just need to make sure we're communicating by email and let's not forget the telephone as well um proactively you know getting in touch with executors we haven't done all so already you know, get in contact with all your all of your executors particularly from those you know larger estates um and one of the things straight away is asking for an interim distribution if, if possible you know potentially that some of the um, legacy income is potentially locked up in assets, but actually often there is a lot of cash um, and there may well be um, cash that executors have access to and can make those distributions. So, and, and, and if you do, obviously ask for payments via backs instead of sending checks across. So, so just, I guess, simply speaking, there's lots of proactive stuff that we need to be doing to make sure that if there is 
cash out that, that can be received that we make sure that we're getting as much of that in as possible. Um, anything to add there, Matthew, from your point of view? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the interesting things about this is I, I remember the sort of 2008-9-10 recession. And the big difference then was that it moved very slowly. And although it undoubtedly depressed legacy income in the long term, this is the first time we've seen a recession, for want of a better word, that has directly impacted cash flow immediately. And so a lot of our members are reporting that the, their monthly cash receipts have dropped by as much as half. But one of the things to remember, I think, is that this disruption has been just as strong for executives, for the legal profession and for um, kind of professional executives as well as individuals as it has for uh, charity staff. It, it, it's something that applies on both sides. And so law firms, as a, for instance, or professional executives who would expect to carry out their business in a very traditional sort of, uh, sort of hard copy letter and check based way, which many still did, have suddenly had to completely change their processes around to move to emailing and doing fax transfers. But it is possible to adapt. So as an example, the ILM has been office free, shall we say, for two and a half years now. Our post goes directly to our accountants and they scan it and email it to us and they bank checks on our behalf uh, and are uh, sort of effectively act as a, an office for us. And so it is possible to set up mechanisms that effectively replicate having an office and will alleviate a lot of the difficulties I think some of our members are facing. You know, had we still had an office, we would be in the same difficulties that a lot of other people are. But actually, uh, sort of, although it has disrupted our activities in many ways, from a sort of a business continuity point of view, we've carried on. And these mechanisms are available. I think, you know, look at post forwarding, look at dealing with uh, sort of the, the admin, in inverted commas, in a new way. Uh, because there are options. The other thing I think is to understand that executors are human. Their lives have been disrupted uh, every bit as much as uh, sort of our, as the charity staffs have. And I think there's a lot to be said under current circumstances for picking up the phone to an executor, explaining your situation and asking them if it's possible to make a distribution. Is there anything they can do to help you right now? Um, and to prioritize those files that do contain uh, sort of those cases that do contain cash and make a, make a point of saying uh, and contacting those people and saying, if you have any cash and you are able to make a distribution, this is the impact it will have on our work right now. And be quite candid about the impact that uh, if they could distribute 20 or 30,000 pounds, that would have uh, sort of immediately for you. Thank you. I think there's some really good points you both made there. Um, I think particularly just around picking up the phone and speaking to executors, everyone's human, everyone's in the same uncertain position. And, and as you say, making it really clear the, the impact that it will have if it is possible to, to yeah, distribute some in the short term. Um, so yeah, great, there's some really good tips in there, thank you. Um, question number two, how do we strike the right tone in our legacy communications during this time? Again, Ashley, if you want to go first. Well, I think, Lucindy, you kind of just hit the nail on the head, really. You know, we are all human and everyone is in 
everyone's kind of in the same boat in, in this whole situation. You know, us um, as legacy officers, our other kind of charity legacy officers that are working, um, co-beneficiaries, executors, we're all kind of finding our way. And I think we just need to make sure that, you know, we're kind of cutting, cutting each other some slack, that we're kind of being extra patient, extra kind of kind, courteous, all of those things. Actually, all, the, all of those things that we should kind of be doing anyway in kind of good legacy administration. It's not just a process. It is about people. It's a really important part of the of the legacy journey. You know, it's the end point. You know, it's where we can really get the uh, the best for and the biggest impact from our legacy donors gift. But also, we can create that positive supportive environment that can encourage future giving. You know, so if we if we get the communication right um, with those with those executors who are also probably writing wills, they're going to be more likely to want to, you know, prompt and nudge their, um, their clients when they're making it to think about whether they'd include a gift or it may well be a family person and next of kin, a, a family executor who, if they have a really positive experience may, might be much more likely to consider including a gift in, the, in their will or, or, or if not advocating it to other people, um, because the opposite is certainly true and you know, if we get it wrong that can have kind of far-reaching consequences so I think I think you know it is just about getting getting the, the tone right um, absolutely pick up the phone you know we've lost the art of that haven't we um, we often don't you know we just don't pick up the phone and we maybe sit and hide behind an email which you kind of lose all the um, you know, tone just doesn't carry that well on email, but you know, picking up the phone, having a chat, building a rapport, building a relationship, finding out, you know, how the um, executors are doing, you know, especially if they're a, a family executor, a lay executor, they may well be under, you know, real um, pressures themselves. You know, what can we do to help them, even if it's just having a chat, you know, they if it's an older person, they may well be more, more vulnerable at risk, they might be um, shielding, for example, they might not have spoken to someone for a while. They might really welcome that chat. So I think it's just, it's doing all of those kind of soft skills. Um, and I think actually that's one of the great things that's kind of we're seeing is people are coming together, pulling together, supporting each other. And that's no different, I think, um, for us as, as, leg as legacy officers. Thank you, Ashley. And I think... Um, it, yes, Ashley is absolutely right. One of the key things to remember, being an executor is a very onerous task. There's a lot that goes with it. Even under normal circumstances, there is a lot that goes with it. And I think it's important to recognize that uh, sort of an, an executor, a, lay, a sort of a, a private individual who's administering a state, which will probably be the estate of, you know, a family member or a close friend, will will be under an, a lot of pressure anyway and will be under enormous pressure at the moment because every, all the normal activities of daily life have got a lot more difficult even something simple like sorting out some paperwork and taking it to the post office feels and i didn't attest to this from my own experience feels sort of both slightly transgressive and like an enormous undertaking our worlds have all got a lot smaller and so I, I would absolutely reiterate it. We are advising our 
our members to pick up the phone in the first instance. I think previously picking up the phone might have been a, a sort of a last resort, but actually right now we're saying just pick up the phone and speak to someone and go, what's your situation? Is there anything we can do to help you? You know, is there any assistance? We do have some experience of this. And if there is anything we can do for you right now, um, then absolutely do that. The other thing that has struck me more generally is that some charities are carrying out, and this is more of a fundraising point, but I think sort of there is an instinctive sense that it's inappropriate to do anything right now with what's going on in society. But actually some charities are running immensely sensitive and very powerful fundraising adverts on television, which I saw two last night that I thought were very striking and, ex and got the balance exactly right. And um, I suppose I'd be willing to name check under pressure, but um, I think it is possible right now. Charities do still have a right to, to speak and to say, you know, despite the broader circumstances we are in, the work we do is immensely important. Yeah, I think just picking up on one of those points that Matthew said, you think ordinary things are becoming increasingly more, you know, difficult and onerous. And so we absolutely need to make sure that we're coordinating our efforts between charities where we've, where we've got co-beneficiaries to make sure that we're not, you know, asking executives to do things, you know, um, you know, duplicate things that they've already maybe sent to other people. So, you know, let's not kind of put them under extra pressure than we need to but absolutely you know we this isn't about stopping you know we sh we need to, to carry on you know our, our organizations our beneficiaries rely on it will rely on it and legacy and giving legacy income in my opinion will only become more important uh, over the next you know 12 months as, as other other income streams you know dropped potentially really significantly so we it, we've got a duty a responsibility to carry on it's just making sure that we do it in the right way which actually i don't think is any there's nothing there's nothing new about that we, we've always known that good legacy administration is as much about um, our tone the way we do it the way we communicate as much as what we do you know it's not not simply a process thank you both um yeah i think you both made some really good points there. It sounds like what you've mostly been saying is, is carry on doing what you're brilliant at doing in terms of legacy administration, which is being empathetic and patient and supportive and, and yeah, pick up the phone in the first instance and remember that everyone's in the same boat. And um, I thought it was a particularly good point you made around some, some executors maybe self-isolating themselves and might actually love to have a chat on the phone with someone um, and to talk to, to a charity that is close to the heart of someone that they care about. So, so yeah, some, some really good points there. Thank you. Um, on to the third question. How can we ensure wills are legal and valid during the COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, this is a really interesting question because, you know, one of the things that we have seen is a significant rise in people making wills, you know, all from all, all kind of um, all aspects of the will writing sector, whether it's you know, solicitors or um, online will providers, telephone will, will, um, will writers, they're all saying that, that they've seen a significant increase in demand for services as people um, want to make wills. And that is completely understandable. We know 
uh, we know that most people just put off writing a will, even though they know they need to have one and actually confronting uh, mortality, which we're all doing in this situation, you know, is one of those things that will, will make us get out there and, and write them. I think one of the, we've seen one of the issues is that the law that, that governs will writing is exceptionally old. It was uh, 1837, I think, the, the Wills Act was was brought into um, brought into law. That's almost 200 years, and lots of things have changed. And there are lots of technicalities involved in in that, which mean that if you don't write the will in a specific way, it can quickly and um, you know it can be com complications. Potentially, the will can be invalid. One of those is is around witnessing. You know, witnessing needs to the will needs to be physically printed and signed and witnessed by two people, who um, simply you know can't be uh, beneficiaries of the estate. And so, how do we do that in um, in a situation where we're in lockdown, where there's social distancing, particularly with um, older people making wills if they're in care homes? How how do we do that? And I think that's one of the the issues at the moment is thinking, well, if there is a significant rise in people making wills, how do we make sure that afterwards and in the years to come, hopefully when those wills are um, come into effect, to make sure that they're valid? Um, you know, how do we make sure that in the future, lots of people don't um, say just challenge every will that was written, you know, during this couple of months, because they might say, well, they weren't properly written or, that people were maybe under duress, that people maybe didn't have you know, capacity to do this, especially maybe if there's a gift to charity in it. And I think actually maybe that, you know, that there are more questions necessarily than, I, than that I've got answers to. Um, but I think all, they're all things that I think, um, you know, as a sector, we all need to get our heads around. And I know the Law Society are looking at. And, and for me personally, I hope that it is something that does prompt um, you know, a, a change or an updating at least in in that um, Wills Act. You know, it really needs to be brought into the 21st century. And there are, there are already some changes happening. I know in Scotland they've um, brought in um, video witnessing. Is, is that right, Matthew? I think you mentioned that to me when yeah, we spoke. Yeah, and it's sort of, well, the Scottish uh, the Scottish rules on will making are less onerous than the laws in England and Wales. And the Scottish government has greater flexibility to vary them. And so they are experimenting with also, yes, sort of video witnessing and all sorts of um, sort of innovations that are not the law in England and Wales. The thing to say, I mean, we've had discussions with the Law Society about this. The general position of the courts is that they seek to uphold wills where they possibly can. Uh, particularly if there is only a single will. In other words, if there are two wills that people are claiming are valid, that's a different situation. But if someone has a will that is theirs, is the only will that is known of and clearly represents their wishes and is rational on the face of it, as the saying goes, um, the court's position is that it seeks to uphold um, it seeks to uphold the validity of wills where the alternative would be no will existing. So broadly speaking, it is better that someone has a will um, than that they don't. And the view, and this is not legal advice, may I say this is not legal advice, nor explicitly has anyone relaxed the rules on wills 
being witnessed. In other words, you need two witnesses who effectively can see each other. Although the point to make is they need to be able to see each other, but they do not need to be in the same room under case law. And so a lot of solicitors are doing things like having, you can have um, someone be sat in a car and sign a will and then pass it through the window to two witnesses who witness it on the street or sometimes people in their houses sign the will and then pass it out of a window to two witnesses who are both stood six feet apart but all three parties can see each other and the will is effectively witnessed. So there are ways around it. It's not easy but there are ways around it but the general view is that the courts are likely to take a more understanding and sympathetic view of wills that were executed during this period because it is clear that you know if it is clear that uh, some you know best efforts were made and the will is is clearly a true representation of what the person works I think you are unlikely to see the courts upholding lots and lots of claims against wills on technical grounds about witnessing the courts are very unlikely to start striking down wills wholesale because of very slight difficulties about the witnessing. However, as I say, the government was offered the opportunity to bring in an emergency act to relax the rules on witnessing and declined to do so. Yeah, it's a shame that they didn't take that opportunity, but it has obviously uh, encouraged people to be quite creative with how they are witnessing their wills. I saw something about people doing it over their garden fence recently yep. which is a yeah which is perfectly valid so long as so long as the you know people think the witnesses all have to be stood at a table in some kind of uh, sort of in the style of a 19th century painting but in actual fact so long as all three all three parties the two witnesses and the testator can see each other physically then the witnessing is valid yeah, it is possible. You just have to think outside the box a little bit. You do, or yeah. through the car window. Isn't that, isn't, isn't that the great thing? Of, well, you know, seeing a silver lining, you know, the, the innovation that's going on, it's yes. forcing us to to do things that ordinarily maybe, you know, we just would never have thought about before. And um, I do you know, think, sorry, Ashley, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go for it. I do think actually this may be the breakthrough that everyone involved in will making and not just us but the law society hope the same thing and all of the professional bodies and remember a charity that this may be the moment at which will making becomes the kind of wide scale habit that everybody has always wanted you know we know that at the moment it's a minority i mean you lucinda may know the numbers more accurately than me but it is a minority of people who make a will at present and I genuinely am hopeful that this may be, may be the moment at which making a will becomes a default activity for a majority of the population. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, actually, Matthew. I think it could be the, um, yeah, that sort of change, change in people's um, thinking around, around what's important to them and, and how important it is to have, have your... Have your um, have your sort of estate in order as it were um and yeah maybe this is the start of a yeah a new a new era for for will writing perhaps well i think um, that's an interesting point i mean i think actually when we look at the stats you know most people do actually write wills you know intestacy is relatively low it's been dropping for quite a while and i think about 85 percent of people when they die have a will 
but I think what we see is that a lot of that will writing only happens really kind of much later in life and I think that's because we you know it's just that thing that we we put it off we don't want to engage with it we don't like to think about mortality we don't like talking about that we certainly don't talk about it to anyone else and so we just kind of push it to one side and it's only when actually we're confronted with our mortality maybe because we get diagnosed with a health condition or maybe we lose someone close to us that actually we kind of break through that barrier and and do it and so i think i think absolutely matthew maybe this is a shift this could be a shift a societal shift that happens where we we can talk about this we need to talk about this um we need to talk about kind of our, our plans what we want to happen in the future and maybe we might engage with things like we're writing from a, from a younger age um, and then that's a fantastic opportunity for us as charities and as fundraisers to talk about the, you know, the value, the benefit of including a gift uh, to charity in that will, you know, look at all the emotional benefits that can bring to people and the positive difference it can make to, you know, to, to good causes and, and to the future. And I, and I think, and I hope that after this, crisis is kind of behind us actually there is going to be a fantastic platform to talk about that to talk about the kind of the future that we want to create and build um and charity and giving and legacy giving is all you know is all going to be a core, core part of that mm. so we've got to look we've got to just keep looking for the positives in this haven't we? yes yeah yeah no i think um you made a really good point actually that despite how awful this situation is i think one of the positive things is that people are taking a step back and looking at the things they really appreciate and value like clapping for key workers in the NHS every Thursday a lot of people perhaps might not have thought about how much they need and value the NHS but it also goes into other areas charities community groups who who are suddenly stepping up and people realize how important these organizations are for society um, and yeah, like you say, after this, it's it's going to be a really good opportunity for for charities to talk to their supporters about how important their work is, and and yeah, it's going to be um, it's going to be an interesting time. Yeah, and I think genuinely, I, and the clapping for the NHS is a great example. But also, I think if you see the way people where I live, uh, almost immediately a group started up delivering sort of food and other supplies to elderly and vulnerable people. Um, and a sort of a degree of self-help arose immediately and I think actually I think we I think we cannot overestimate the impact this is going to have on the way people look at society in all sorts of ways that I think are hard to predict but we can already see the outlines and I think part of that is will be an acknowledgement of the importance of charity and social fabric for want of a better word in general actually and i think that can only be good in the long run for the charity sector absolutely yeah and um, on to our fourth out of five questions um so this probably leads on quite nicely um what is next for a legacy administration Yeah, that, that's a, that's a good question. I guess you know, in in the immediate, you know, we've got we've got a job to do, and we've got it's going to be a tough year. We know um, for the sector as a whole, and we've got to do as, as best we can to to bring that vital legacy income coming in. Um, but I think it's just exactly what we've talked about. Really, we've got to use this as an opportunity 
to innovate, not just to go straight back to how we used to work um, and the way things used to be, but to, to take this as a marker to say, actually, how do we want things to be in the future? You know, can we continue with some of these things that we've adopted, for example, just on, on a just on a basic um, you know, principle? Yeah, everyone's working remotely now, and that's just one, one area that's going to lead to a huge reduction in um in travel in carbon emissions in cost you know um the cost of everyone commuting we know it can be done Let, can we carry that on um as, as we go back we talked about the potential to transform and and um innovate in the way that wills are written or you know all of that kind of stuff so i think i hope you know i think it's fast tracking a lot of things that were happening already you know, there were kind of long-term trends that maybe were happening and it's just forced the issue. But I think it is that opportunity afterwards to say, hang on a minute, what do we want to do? Um, and what do we want to do differently? And, and I think in specifically for legacy administration, like I said, we've got a really important job to do. And, and I think I'm, I'm optimistic that even, you know, we, we've got a difficult year coming that actually we saw in the last major recession in 2008 that while legacy income was impacted it did re it did bounce back um and i saw i read a report earlier today that saying that while yeah particularly house sales the forecast of significantly drop they're not actually expecting house prices to drop by as much um and they should pick, pick back up next year so again i think it's a cash flow issue and hopefully this is not lost legacy income but it's just delayed legacy income um, and I was thinking I thought that about that specifically you know how can we innovate well potentially if that legacy income is is going to come down the line you know are there are there kind of finances out there that you know might kind of buy future legacy income maybe a discounted rate that you know charities might need now now that was a kind of quick random thought earlier but but I'm sure there's going to be innovations that are going to come out of this um because that's what you know difficult situations do they force innovation and it's our job to kind of respond to that as best as we can i mean i think that's right for years the general view from charities was that uh legacy administration was it was too difficult to make work from home that the hurdles were too high uh, and that it was fundamentally one of those functions perhaps like uh sort of hr or finance that just was much better suited to being run with a central team from a central office. But what charities are discovering now is that actually it is perfectly possible to run a very functional, uh, sort of very high performing legacy team with everybody working remotely. And we did a survey of our members and asked them how many of you will be keen to get back to working from an office and how many of you will want to carry on working from home. And obviously, there are a proportion who said, uh, you know, I'd quite like to get back to an office for whatever reason, because, you know, I like the people or uh, sort of uh, working from home doesn't suit me or whatever. But an absolute majority said that they would prefer to carry on working from home. And I think as someone who's been home working now for about four years, I have to say, once you've got the hang of it, it is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it is, you know, it's unbeatable and I am now unsuited to working in an office environment, I think. And I think there is going to be a big shift in both 
what is considered to be possible uh, in terms of how legacy administration can be run. I think there will be a much bigger pickup of the technological tools that can make it a lot easier to do. And I think it will, that will make it, in many ways, a much more attractive way of earning a living for a whole category of people for whom commuting into an office on a nine-to-five basis isn't really suitable for them, which can only be a good thing. I think broadening sort of participation, uh, making the work more accessible, I think all of that has to be a, an incredibly uh, sort of positive sort of development and I think a lot of these changes will stick in fact I think it's almost the other way that charities that attempt to to sort of move back to the old ways of working might encounter a, a degree of resistance from their staff who've adapted and are are happier or or prefer it yeah, yeah it's a really I, good point. sorry just to jump back in I think as well one of the general things I think that we're learning from this whole situation is that how connected we are you know, we are completely reliant on each other and society is only as kind of strong as, as, as the weakest link, really. And I, I think, you know, we've known that as well in, in terms of legacy giving, but, you know, we can't do legacies well in, it doesn't work well in a silo. Legacy administration doesn't work well in a silo. You know, if it's over there in the legal team or in the finance team, it's it's got to be, it's about integration. And I think that's one of the things that, I think some charities know that and do that brilliantly, but I think something that as a sector we've got to take forwards that you know we're all reliant on each other, um, and that's true for from a legacy giving perspective as well, and, and we need to make sure that it's just so much more joined up um, in the future. I think that's true, and I think the sector as a whole has been somewhat resistant to. Uh, sort of flexible working and flexible working patterns not not across the board mm, but true. i think you know there has been a general resistance and uh, the charity sector i think has been quite rooted in a culture of a both, both an office-based culture and in the notion that you have to have uh, an office in a big urban center often london but not always in one of the other big cities and i think uh, you know i think we are realizing that that's not the case anymore uh, you know, and if there's anyone I think should be worried, it's people who uh, make their living from managing and running very large London office blocks, because I suspect uh, a lot of organisations, not just charities, are going to be looking at those and going, oh, it turns out we didn't need that after all. I um, I agree with you both. I think there's, um, I think some really good points about it, but it sounds like what you're both saying is that sort of out of this uh, adverse um, situation that we expect or we hope that uh, charities will become more adaptable and innovative but one of the most important things that we've learned from this or will be learning from this is the importance of, of staying connected and supporting each other um, but using technology and and realizing things don't have to be done the way they've always been done and that there's always room to change and and find better ways of doing things in ways that we perhaps would never have wanted to or tried to do before. So yeah, I think all positives. Yeah, and I think, I genuinely think that sector is likely to become more diverse in terms of its workforce in really positive ways as a result of this, geographically diverse and socially diverse. I think this will drive a really positive change about the sort of people who will consider a career in the charity sector now. 
Absolutely, yeah. It will, um, it will definitely help with recruitment for those into, into the charity sector, as you say, becoming more flexible and changing the way we're working and becoming perhaps less London-centric. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think that will be only for the, for the good of the charity sector in the long run. Um, one last very quick question. Do you have any words of encouragement for our members during this uncertain time? Yeah, I'd say, you know, you're not on your own. Um, even if you're this whole kind of home working malarkey is new to you, um, you know, you're not you're not on your own. You know, we are so fortunate that this is 2020 and it's it's kind of never been easier to keep connected. And there are loads of ways that you can connect with other people. You know, there's the um the IOF legacy and in memory special interest group. There's a brilliant new Facebook group that the ILM set up that I'm sure Matthew will tell you about. There's wider Facebook chat um, on there. There's loads of ways and there's, I've seen tons of stuff on LinkedIn. People are sharing, people are being really generous at the moment, sharing their experience or just offering um, you know, their time to, to chat and, and do that and make the most of that. Um, and I, just on another bit that, that Matthew touched on before as well, take this opportunity if you can you know if your if your employer allows it and if your personal circumstances allow it but work flexibly you know we don't need to work nine to five necessarily we do that because that's the way we've always done it but you know there are certain ways uh, part of your day that might be better suited to doing in the evening especially if you've got kids when they're when they're in bed and take time and day to you know, to do those other things or, you know, just think differently. Don't, don't just try and transpose your normal kind of daily routine um, into now your new one. Um, you know, make the most of it. There are loads of benefits to working from home. So I'd say, you know, you're not on your own. Um, you'll, get, you'll get used to this. You'll get better at it. And, and finally, I guess this isn't going to last forever. Um, it, and, and hopefully it will just be a, a distant memory in the not too distant future. Thank you. I mean, the, yes, I would say uh, as a seasoned home worker, I work a three shift day. I don't work nine to five. Uh, I tend to, I feel often uh, sort of, I don't, I feel quite tired often late afternoon. So I tend to stop at three and then start again at six and do another two hours. And that suits me very well. And once you've got the hang of that, it makes the idea of a, a nine to five day feel a little uh, as, Ashley said quite antiquated the other thing I would say is we know you know ourselves remember a charity the Institute of Fundraising we all know how incredibly tough it is and what an exhausting month it's been and you know let's be honest we're probably we're probably going to get another couple of months of this at least I mean we all hope it ends soon I certainly do but uh, I think you know we have to brace ourselves we're not we're not done yet uh, but in the medium to, well, in the short term, although legacy income is under pressure, in many charities, it is one of the better, it is one of the more robust income streams. It is unquestionably under pressure, but obviously charity, a lot of charities have seen a number of their other income streams fall away completely. And so sort of as, as they have often been, legacies are, uh, you know, absolutely a vital income stream right now. And those of you working in legacies, whether it's legacy marketing, legacy administration, or as many members do uh, both, 
you are absolutely critical right now in the survival of the charity in you know your charity almost certainly and the sector as a whole um and it's quite an amazing thing our members do uh, the other thing i would say is that in the medium to long term the future for legacy income thanks to the work of remember a charity and uh, sort of thousands of individuals working across the sector promoting legacies working with the legal profession and so on the future for legacy income is still incredibly bright the underlying dynamics the sort of changing age profile of our society uh, people's attitudes towards will making and charities all of those remain incredibly strong and you know as ashley said this will pass and actually in the medium to long run uh, i you know i think the future looks very bright actually uh, it's just in the short term it's it is immensely difficult uh, and the facebook uh, ilm's facebook group is the lonely legacy manager which is designed as a very light-hearted safe space where people can vent their frustrations about working from home working from home with a partner and children in the other room and all the other things that have come to us and it is designed to be fun uh in well uh, it is designed to be fun and it is in designed to be somewhere people can go and moan and uh, generally let off a bit of steam so please do join and you'd be very welcome and thank you all very much that um that facebook group sounds like it would be um brilliant at this time <laughs> well we set it up directly because we thought we'd always sort of avoided having a facebook group but we thought if ever there was a time to have a facebook group where people could just go on and whinge this was probably it so uh, <laughs> we took the plunge and set it up great and um, thank you both so much for your for your time and your expertise. I think this has been a really positive and hopeful conversation, which I think is the most important thing. Um, if anyone listening has any further questions, um, how can they reach you both? Um, so you can always email me at ceo at legacymanagement.org.uk, uh, which is also on the ILM's website. And... Uh, if that isn't, you know, that will either be answered by me or if a member of our team is better placed to answer it, then it's sort of uh, we'll pass it on and there's an inquiries form and we do respond. Uh, and right now we are more than happy to answer whatever queries you may have about how you're doing things because we're all learning at the moment. We're all on a massive learning curve. And so we are always, always happy to respond. What Matthew means to say is that if you email him when Pointless is on in the afternoon, it will be one of his team members. That <laughs> it's absolutely true. That is absolutely <laughs> true. That's why the he clocks up at team, three. The entire team have learned to mimic my, uh, my writing style. And so, yes, you may well get an email back going, what Matthew wanted us to say is... You yes. can feel free to email me at, at ashley at legacy-link.co.uk or I'm on Twitter... Um, at Ashley Rothorn uh, or yeah I'm on LinkedIn as well I'm sure you can find it brilliant thank you um, and just to end on one last positive note what are you both looking forward to most when we come out of lockdown it's go back to school <laughs> <laughs> sitting in a pub garden and having a pint yes <laughs> sitting in the back garden just is not the same no that's it's not is it no especially if you live in a city and have a small garden as i do it is just not the same as being able to to access a little bit of wide open space yeah being able to go to a park and not feel guilty yes exactly <laughs> not feeling transgressive if you walk to the corner shop and buy a newspaper and a pint of milk <laughs> yeah 
Brilliant. Um, well, thank you. Um, thank you thank both you. again for, for joining us and thank you to everyone for listening. Um, our next podcast is going to be on stewardship with Claire Routley and Michael Clark. Um, so do keep an eye out for news on when that will be live and please do send your questions in advance. Um, if you have any questions about uh, today's podcast or about anything else coming up, you can email us at info at rememberacharity.org.uk. Um, and I think that's it. That's it from us. Any last um, comments or notes from, from Ashley Matthew? No, thank you. And thank you all. No, uh, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And thank you all for the work you're doing, actually. It's quite an amazing time, but people are responding brilliantly. Yeah, to you both as well. Thank you. All right. Um, thank you, everyone. And uh, hope to speak to you all soon. Thanks and goodbye. Bye.